And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. I feel like in this particular episode, we've already had uh, an entire interview that's existed before we've pressed record. Today, I am chatting to comedian, television, radio presenter, raconteur, and general nice bloke, Lawrence Mooney. Thank you very much, Rachel. <laughs> and of course, we had to speak beforehand so you could establish my bona fides for the last <laughs> part of that introduction, general nice bloke. So far, so good. Well, let us go way back to the beginning. To the very beginning. That's all you got? I thought you were going to go on. <laughs> you didn't know the rest of the song? <laughs> I didn't know what song I was after. <laughs> the, the, oh, I think let's start of, at the very beginning. Oh, right. That's right. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, a, ti. That's it. Yeah, I'm not going back there. So when you were little, did you want to be a performer and you just got it to it later? Or what did you want to be when you were little? Uh, for the first big stretch of my life, I wanted to be a motor mechanic. I, I do you know a, what I love? An achievable dream. I love it when kids have an achievable dream. You want to be a motor mechanic, you can be a motor mechanic. Well, you would think so. (laughs) Or maybe you can't. (laughs) Well, it's it's kind of quite perverse in terms of what I've become. Mm. Because if a child articulated, I want to be a a rock star or a movie star, or I want to be a great comedian, Mm. most parents would say, why don't you... Why don't you think about something else? Yes. Like, look at your dad. He's a motor mechanic. <laughs> yeah. So what I was saying, because I was obsessed with cars and uh, would be always driving a plate or a steering, some steering wheel, frisbee, whatever, making car noises, my parents sat me down when I was 11 and said, you're not becoming a motor mechanic. Why? Because we didn't migrate to this country to have you work fix other people's cars that's right what did they want you to do to well my father was a a mechanical engineer so they wanted me to you know go one step further right so you can do the mechanical bit but just don't do the pod version if you're a doctor or a lawyer or something like that you can have as many cars as you want (laughs) and then you can do it in your own time yeah right (laughs) and they you know said you'll be covered in oil and dirt all of your life You'll be cold, you'll have to work too hard, blah, blah, blah. They they completely dissed being a motor mechanic. As a kid, how did you find that? Because some kids resent that from their parents when their parents turn around and go, well, your dream isn't good enough. Did I, you think, oh, no, that's great advice, actually, I don't want to be in overalls? Or did you think, F- you, mum and dad? <laughs> like, no, no, I, I just went, mm, okay. <laughs> what they probably didn't realise at the time that I was bound to be a bit of a drifter and Mm -hmm. a flake and just do a whole lot of things until I found what it was that I loved, which is, you know, the beers (laughs) that we're in. I love it. I just love it so much. So I might, you know, bleat about it now and then, but Mm. uh, the fact that I fell into comedy was probably destiny. I was probably intended to do that because it was a little bit later on in primary school, but more definitely in high school that I discovered that uh, the laugh, you know, Getting the class to crack up became my reason for being. That's why I wanted to go to school. I loved it. And it was also a way to access the the peer group because I wasn't great at sport and I wasn't a big kid. It's like, you know, Mooney can Mooney's funny. This guy's funny. Mm. So it was my currency and it helped me, you know, 
get the entree into that world and now an entree into you know so many other worlds so i'm kind of glad the folks had that chat to me because i think that if there was a mob i could quickly become lowest common denominator Mm. i think there's you know some honorable and moral fiber inside me without doubt but given uh, a poor environment i could stop evolving very quickly Right. Back then. So I grew up in Bayswater, outer eastern suburb. I could have easily become just another guy down the pub or the footy club drinking booze and living out his life doing, you know, whatever. So what when – did you find that – Not that 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 is – no, I don't want to make that sound like that's less than. No, of course not. But I could have – You could have gone down a wrong path. You were susceptible to that sort of influence. I'm kind of glad I wasn't raised – in a whole lot of, you know, bad environments because I could have embraced them. Well, I think, I mean, it's that nature versus nurture sort of thing, you know. Mm. I think some people that go down the wrong path, you think, gosh, if you were just around that old sort of wanky saying, if you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, you know, if you're around people that influence you in a certain way. I've never heard that wanky phrase but that is but it really does make a huge difference because if you if you think in any aspect of your life if you are an overweight person who wants to lose weight but everybody around you eats like shit sees no interest in exercise Mm. doesn't applaud your decisions your difficult decisions well then there's no real you know necessity to change like i think it's much harder to to go your own way in those kind of environments so the idea of being around certain people and and going a certain way sometimes it is a bit of a there but for the grace of god go i because i just happen to go down this path instead but there but for the grace of god go i and there but for the grace of my parents go i because they helped me slip the knot a couple of ways even though we lived in a suburb where you know you would leave school You'd get a job, you'd marry someone locally and you'd stay pretty much set, which has happened to a lot of the guys that I went to school with and the women. You know, they said, you're not going to do a trade Mm -hmm. and then you're not going to the local high school, you're going to a private school. And then, you know, there was this kind of mantra my father always used to have was always make sure that the people that you're associating with are better than you in every way. Great advice. But it's like, well, what about them? If <laughs> yeah, right. If Why they want to hang them, out yeah. to me? <laughs> and he said, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, aspire for to better things. So, you know, they helped me on that path. It's like because I could have aspired for less than better things. That's really great advice. Yeah, it is great advice. And so I ended up, you know, moving into the inner city and also art helped, you know, facilitate that because then you meet people with you know broad views and magical thinking and uh people who are trying to articulate that inarticulate speech of the heart and all of that sort of stuff and the artistic world is just an absolute ticket to freedom Mm. i love it so for me it was you know theater i started in amateur theater and ended up it changes its name when you get close to town it's fringe theater and um so you know the people that i was associating with were all about higher ideals in that regard that was and a so game changer for me going to university doing theater. student theatre. Yeah. yeah. And theater just is I would recommend anyone get their child into a theatre. Just it's to great. open your mind. I think it was the very first time I'd gone to a private girls' school for years and it was the very first time I had met 
a bunch of people who were so different and so accepting. I mean, I could have walked in there and with uh, in, in and said anything or worn anything or done anything and provided I wasn't being a, you know, right royal asshole or trying to be mean to anybody. If I just was expressing myself in a certain way, no dramas. No dr- you you be exactly who you want to be and I'd never experienced that before and it's so liberating to be around people who are just like we accept you for exactly who you are. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, we all like to, you know, stereotype and pigeonhole and the classic thing about a private girls' school is that they're all bitchy and they're snobs and they're going to torture you and make life hell for you. Mm. But also by the same token, you know, where I grew up, Bayswater, the, the stereotype and the pigeonhole is like they're all bogans and they're lowbrow and they don't, you know, aspire to great things. But there's men I've met and women in that milieu that are visual artists mm-hmm. in the privacy of their own garage and home. Yeah. there's. Uh, I went to a funeral last week for a guy that we grew up with and the eulogy was incredibly articulate and passionate and one of the most quintessentially Australian things I've ever heard. And he said of this man's family, they didn't change much over the years, but then you don't need to change when you're hard-working people who are staunchly loyal and loving to one another, who are happy with their lot in life. Mm. It's like, I'm an arrogant prick because sometimes <laughs> I look down my nose at you people. Yeah, but yeah. you're just as worthy, whatever you're doing. For me, that wasn't something I wanted to do. I didn't want to stay in that suburb and I didn't want to lead that life. But it's not that I don't honour it and respect it. So where did you go post-school? Did you, you went to university and studied? No, I didn't. I, was, I didn't want to go to university because I got shit marks. But also, I, I think I was quite young. I was 17 when I finished high school. Mm. And I think I would have benefited from that extra year. So I sat at home and I reckon I really got a little bit of the showbiz bug. Um, I watched the Mike Walsh show every day for six months. Chain smoking Winfield Blue and just thought, I want to do that. Is that the first, apart from the fact that you sort of saw in school that you the funny could kind of get you out of situations and help to sew that social fabric, was that sort of experience the first experience you'd had of actually, oh, I might want to do this as a job or? Yeah, I'd, well, there's, I think there's a couple of component parts that start falling into place. So certainly the school thing, the fact that I didn't want to do anything. Mm. I think drifting is very important because then you'll find what you want to do. There's a French philosophy of, you know, you go through life and once you've decided what you don't want to do, what you do want to do will present itself. So you say, I don't like that, don't like them, I don't want her, I don't want this. And so eventually your life unfolds before you. So become discerning. Um, So there's all these little bits. So I was making people laugh at school. I got hooked on Mike Walsh. Love the Mike Walsh show. (laughs) It was brilliant. It was just a really well-produced, put-together show Mm. of quite long-form interviews for the first three segments, three guests, then a bit of mucking around with John Michael Howes and and Jeff Harvey in the band. And he used to have um, some people behind the camera that, you would muck around with too, a bit of a chat to the audience and then, you know, uh, a music act, end of the show. So <laughs> there was that and I'd also uh, watched a lot of Dave Allen because my parents are from England so it was locked onto the ABC, watched comedy, comedy, comedy. My mum introduced me to 
um, Monty Python yeah. and the two Ronnies and all that sort of stuff. And so she had this well love of comedy and uh, was like, you know, you can do that. So she encouraged you to do I it? Think she, I think she did, yeah. I think that's where the sense of humour comes from. My dad liked to laugh, but my mum liked to make people laugh. Yeah, right. Because she, like me, is a little bit of a megalomaniac and attention seeker. Yeah. And so would use comedy to break tension and attract attention to herself. Um, and then I said out loud, you know, I want to be an actor. I really want to be an actor. And I think it was watching Lawrence of Arabia. Really? Like, There's the name. Yeah, And yeah. I was watching Peter O'Toole and those amazing electric blue eyes. And she said, well, you need to go to a theatre. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I want to be a movie star. And she said, yeah, well, all those guys are theatre actors. So, so did you go Did you go and train? Well, no, I went to the local amateur theatre. Love it. Loved it because my mates were like, what are you going to the theatre for? It's a bit poofy. It's full <laughs> yeah, of poofs. Of it's like, yeah, it is full of poofs. And so when a heterosexual man walks through the door, yeah. it's like, oh, my God, this is Shangri-La. Because <laughs> I'd never really had attention from women before until I got to theatre. That's like, so true. Because, oh yeah, God. straight women, it's, all you have to choose. There's like, there's no choice. You just choice. have to be there. <laughs> But also the fact that you're a straight guy that likes theatre. Oh, you are an in. That was always that. Yeah, we had a couple of very and it's all and they're always quite attractive too. The guys that come into. I mean, maybe it's just because there's nobody else around. Well, but yeah. attractive guys interested in theatre. So you've got shared interests, yeah. and you're like, oh, we're already. But also, off to yes, fly girls out. were talking to me for the first time. Yeah, ever. <laughs> but also, I was deeply attractive to all the gay men there, yes. which was fantastic too. So yeah. it's like, everybody <laughs> loves me. Oh, everybody loves me. And so that was the deal. Done. So, so I'm never leaving. That's it. I'm here forever. How long were you doing the amateur theatre thing for? So I did my first play at the end of 84 and I did my last play in 1988. So I was part of that amateur theatre company for four years. And at that time, I, I'd got a job, you know, because like didn't want to go to uni. And I was after the six months of smoking Winfield Blue and watching the Mike Walsh show. My dad said, you know, you got to get a job. So I became a customs officer. This is yes, I was I was reading this somewhere on the internets. Yeah. <laughs> How long that were bit's you true. for six years? What a pity border protection wasn't there then, because you could have gotten into media that way. Well, through... the great thing about it was it wasn't border protection in this kind of you know right-wing, knee-jerk, reactionary world of we've got to build a fence and we've got to keep the terrorists out and there's people, you know, seeking to harm us. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm talking about the TV series, Border, yeah. whatever it is. I mean, it's it's never terrorists. It's always just Asian people that are bringing yeah, corn in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or, no, salted fish. Salted fish. Yeah. Border protection or, <laughs> in brackets, delicatessen. <laughs> racist hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it ever is. It's just I've. But I, the the one thing, let's just break it down for a minute because you've had a personal experience with this. Is it just because they really like a certain type of food that isn't available here? Why did? Why is there such a heavy dose of importing of certain food stuff? Is it just because right. I can't get the stuff I like over there, so what, I'm going to bring it in with me? Well, yeah. Essentially, what it is is they came from a culture where that food is freely available and quite rich and also the tradition is you know if you grow vines in italy that you'll take a snipping of your mum or dad's and grow that same variety 
there, wherever you live or here. Right. So when I was a customs officer, it was constantly, you know, you'd unpack a suitcase and there'd be an elaborate vine with a root system in a plastic bag that's been, you know, laid under a damp towel that's going to be planted here and that you oh, and you have, have to have break that. that poor person's heart. Yeah, and charge that poor person with not declaring under some agricultural act. I didn't. I waved a lot of people through. Well, I oh, mean... Chappelle, you're back with your boogie board bag <laughs> and your nine mates. Off you go. I, I, you know, I was too empathetic for real law enforcement because people would say, oh, listen, mate, I'd say, I think you're a good person. Yes, <laughs> yeah. okay, but old but mate... But most people who are caught... You know, they've all got a bullshit story. But old mate with his granddad's vine in yep. his bag, has he put, I have something to declare? No. No. He, because, you know, he's got English as a second language. The documentation is hard to understand. Yeah, right. For somebody with a great ability to read documents. Mm-hmm. He hasn't even signed it, so you read the you know declaration through for him. He eventually signs it. You go through his bag, you find it. He clearly doesn't think it's a problem. And so that's pretty much the world that but you're But I appreciate with. that we are an island, right, and we need to protect us. As I understand the, the, the why we can't let those things in, the real phenomenon that I have difficulty with is mm. the idea that you can be so passionate about certain foodstuffs that you will not leave a country without them. Maybe it's just because Australia, you know, when you say modern Australian cuisine, what the hell is that? I mean, it's there's no – we don't have any of that kind of authentic cuisine that is there is yeah. this one thing we've been eating since we were a baby. It's pretty like bits and Pieces. I'm always a bit envious of that that single-minded, focused passion about yeah. something. It's like I am going to pack nine kilos of salted fish because I cannot possibly go to Australia for a week and a half without this in my life. You have articulated the great Australian search for identity right there, which is we don't have cultural attachment. Yeah. We don't have that passion for much. And so we've got to try and find that passion. And so it plays out on Anzac Day most days or Australia Day where you try and latch on to something. But you don't want to be told that Australia is a flag or, you know, a conflict. It's like we're developing our own idea of Australia. So let's not shove these symbols and ideas down each other's throats. Mm. Let's develop our own idea and our own cuisine and our own customs. Yeah. And the flag as well. I mean, the it's going to be Southern Cross thing. tattoos, really. The Southern Cross Ooh. tattoo. You know what? That's if become you... a real douche tag, hasn't it? That's a... <laughs> For some people, though, it is very symbolic. If you've been in the ADF, maybe it... Yeah, but I feel like it's been flag... commandeered it by douchebags. bags. the flag. You know, the flag should fly over military and government establishments. Yeah, not around your neck, ne- mate, when you're yelling abuse at a Lebanese bloke. Not interested. wearing it as a turban, ironically. Yeah. When you're <laughs> screaming at someone who may wear a turban, yeah, that's where that's yeah, yeah. that's where it's been. Well, a bit I think sort that you shouldn't be allowed to wear the Australian flag until you can name all five stars of the Southern Cross constellation. Can you? Yeah, please. What are they? <laughs> well, they're the first five letters of the Greek alphabet: Alpha, Beta, Delta, Gamma, and Epsilon. Epsilon's a small star. Goodness gracious! I've um, learned something with you. I, I'm fine with you getting a Southern Cross tattoo if you're in to. Astronomy. Astronomy and you're all about <laughs> yeah. guiding by the night stars, yeah. not just because you're in your flip-flops and your board shorts and you want to punch someone in the face that could yeah. originate here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so We've got off. We've we got have off gone off piste. track. We have gone off piste, as they say. So you were in. You were doing that job for six years. Were you like? Were you doing absolutely no comedy or other performance so, at this stage, or were no, you doing six, bits and pieces? Six years as customs officer by night. 
amateur thespian. So this was at the same time that you're doing the theatre. Mm, enjoying the attractions of <laughs> all and sundry at the 1812 <laughs> Theatre Company in Upper Gully. I've just got the vision of you sitting backstage in a seat being fanned by gay men and straight women. Yeah, that's right. I was pretty much the uh, the Hugh Hefner. I used to go around in a velvet smoking jacket just... Reading lines. Different members of the company to perform fellatio on me before I went on. Well, that's one of the... I, I always say that, you know, anybody that's been in amateur Hurry theater, up. I'm on in a moment. <laughs> Anybody that's been in amateur theatre understands the the whole gender fluidity sexuality thing because, I mean, oh, yeah. there, is, there is no boundaries in, in amateur theatre. And, you know, in terms of sexuality, it's like why are you going to, like, nail yourself down? Some people are very clear mm. about their sexuality, but the idea that you, if you aren't clear, why you're asked to nail it down at the age of 15, you get, and then you're going to take advice from that 15-year-old psyche for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to be quite limiting, especially if it's limited by external forces and environmental forces around you. But same with people who've, who've planned out their whole life at 15 and then get the shits of themselves at 32 because they're not married with children, and you go, it doesn't work that way. I think that that is probably more of a female thing because oh, yeah. I think that women tend to idealize or have a plan from 11 and so then they create this structure for themselves that can often lead to disappointment because they're just loading themselves with false expectations oh totally you just mind you by the same token men at the same time are creating an adult in their head that is a cross between league football james bond steve mcqueen (laughs) mr brady (laughs) colonel hogan and Max Smart, that's my, who my adult was. It's like, okay, so kind of happy-go-lucky guy who's Super uh, cool. waiting for his heroic moment. Yeah, yeah. And that's the big trouble. So if your heroic moment doesn't come, you're always ready and frustrated. Waiting. And sometimes under the auspices of alcohol, you make it come <laughs> by punching someone else in the face. Well done. Good on you. Good on you. Good on you. You're not Steve McQueen. You're f- Barry McQueen. <laughs> You're just another cock from the suburbs. <laughs> so how did you then move into comedy? What was the first dipping of the toe? Well, I'd watched a, a lot of comedy through Dave Allen and I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know there was a, a thing called comedy that you could pursue. Uh, so the very first comedian I ever saw was Richard Stubbs at The Last Laugh in 1984 and that was the crystallising moment. It was like, Ding, zling, kring. Uh, the fling, kring. The sword came out of the stone and I held it above my head and uh, the light came out of Richard Stubbs' third eye and connected us. I will be him. What was it about that whole show, him, that He walks lost? out. There's a full audience like 300 people at the last laugh the spotlights on him he doesn't have to share it with a cast or a director and he has got complete control he's got complete rapport with the audience and they are shrieking with laughter and i'm also pissing myself laughing i'm not in a point of envy or professional jealousy at this stage i'm free of those curses Mm. i'm just loving it and just laughing and laughing and laughing and he's he gets to the end and he goes I was like, that is the greatest thing 
I've ever seen. So did you then in your mind have a sort of single-minded focus of I'm going to find out how to be that guy? No. I was just like, <laughs> I want that. So it was still a childish kind of like like watching football. It's like I want to be a footballer or mm. watching a police drama. It's like I wouldn't mind being a cop. And so I think I've always had that kind of directionless kind of thing where it's like I wouldn't mind doing that. I could do that, which I think is very much – the creative mind mm. it's like you're, you're pulling a whole lot of sources around you and creating something inside your own head it's like oh i like that mm. i like that color what's that drink called so it's an inquisitive mind essentially how old were you at that point i was 19 so mm. it was another 10 years before i stood up so i was quite late to the the party i was 29 before i stood up Gosh, so in that in those interim years you were just doing jobs working just uh, itinerant jobs. Were you frustrated at yourself? No. Or you were just oh, like, oh. There was a point where it's like, I need something to happen because I was working as a perfume spray boy and then a <laughs> debt collector and then a high rise window cleaner. And I was like, I'd do anything. What was the debt collecting like? I was, didn't have to knock on doors, I oh, did it okay. over the phone. Yeah, but right. I was very good. I was a, a master of manipulation. Really? To get people to pay their debts, yeah. And I was being richly rewarded by the guy that I worked for who said, you're amazing. Is it because you could connect to people and relate to them and you could sort of mm-hmm. talk and, them? And also I, could, I can play low status very well. Oh, so what was your, what was your shtick? This is going to seem deeply evil. Okay, all right, yeah. So I, I would, you know, have a... But was it people that were genuinely in trouble? Or- people had been ripped off, the product was shit and they didn't want to pay. So you were working for the shit product? Yeah, I was working for a scam. Oh, God. Okay. I was, I was just debt collecting worse. for a scam. Okay. Which, I is thought- why, which is why the guy was so happy to part with a fair amount of money for me to keep the money pouring in. I thought adding context scam. was going to make you look better, but it hasn't. So I apologize. I should have asked no, no, that question. The context <laughs> is that I was by this stage at drama school and I needed to survive a student life and I was prepared to do anything for it. Okay, yeah. And these people had signed a contract, mind you, they were badly scammed. And so they was like, I'm not paying for that, it's shit. I won't go into it, but Mm. it was advertising in publications or crap. Mm -hmm. And so I would have a lever arch folder with each different publication on it and all the bad debtors in those and flick through them each week. And so I would have the excuses they'd given me. So by week six, I'm going in for the kill. <laughs> it's like you've got to pay this because mm. you know you agreed. So I'm not paying it, and so the turning point would come when I would call um, small business people, and this is like nitroglycerin for Australian small business people who work very hard, long hours in a family business, often with their family, very low margins. Mm. They can't afford an extra two hundred bucks for shitty advertising that never really happened. If you call those people bludgers. They will come for you. So uh, that was my kryptonite. I was like, I reckon you're a bit of a bludger. And they would lose their minds to a man. F*** you. Blah, blah, screaming down the phone. And I'd think, gotcha. Oh, and, that is so evil. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and then they would call me. And it's like, please call me a Because that is like, I've got you locked up there. And they inevitably would. And then slam the phone down. It's like, ah. oh. Ring back five minutes later, they're in the post-fury adrenaline. They're quivering. Hello! It's like, hi, it's Len Bruce. Like, I told you! It's like, please don't hang up. And you can feel them still puffed. And then I just say, I don't deserve to be spoken to like that. 
Oh, Lawrence. On the verge of tears. Oh, Lawrence. Oh, listen, mate, I'm fucking really sorry. It's like, no, I've, you've lied to me for six weeks saying that you were going to send the check and you didn't send it. It's really unfair what you've just called me. But I'll send it tomorrow. Just don't call me again. Boom. Got you. Oh, <laughs> is that sorry? This is recorded now, isn't it? <laughs> and they, almost all of them, you shouldn't speak to me like that. I'm just doing my job. I don't deserve to be called that. But I know that when I'd call them a bludger, here it comes. <laughs> Was this the sort of odd kind of because th- there is something, and un- I developed that system. Purely on my own by trial and error. I one day I just went to some like oh, you're a you're a bloody bludger, mate, and he exploded. And I went, oh, that's Ooh, I've got something here. You know the odd thing about that though <laughs> is that because you've I'm come sorry. up with that and you've developed it, there is a sense of really icky, indescribable pride within that where you go, I'm doing a good job. The job is awful, but yeah. I'm doing a good job. I reckon if you're a good con man you'd still be thinking i am one of the best con <laughs> man around yeah yeah right so you were i feel like i feel like i need to shower after that story <laughs> please don't feel like that um, don't 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 pretend that there wasn't some tremendous triumphant feeling inside you <laughs> as i was weaseling money out of these people <laughs> I wanted them to be shonksters that had liked them, but no, they're good just people. innocent good people that have good been people. sold a shoddy product. Yeah. But right. So I did <laughs> so I did debt collecting for yeah. most of drama school. So you went to school for drama? Yeah, yeah. I went to the National Theatre Drama School. So I was in that in that ten years from what reading watching Richard Stubbs to starting, I went to drama school for three of those years. Right. So you're sort of, you're on the path on the mm. way. And so that's, you know, debt collecting is paying my rent and my fees and everything else. You know what the, I really think if you are. <laughs> Still unforgivable, isn't it? so unforgivable. <laughs> but people will love it. Yeah. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good story. It's, it's a, a good great story. story. But this manipulation. is a manipulation. But this is one of the things How about. How do you manipulate people? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have I any. I don't. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I don't have any stories quite as evil as that. Although there is something to be said for the fact that you can actually articulate the manipulation. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure everybody manipulates oh. in some way, but I'm not 100% sure I could pinpoint how I do it. And I was doing it under an assumed name, which <laughs> also gave me great right. joy, and that was Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. Yeah, so Lenny Bruce is a famous stand-up comedian yeah and some people would say probably the father of stand-up comedy you know he was the first that got up and started to use profanity and articulate you know high-minded ideas while still you know using a degree of vulgarity and you know lenny bruce was the man he was the first so you're taking his name name and and using it for master (laughs) manipulation and not many people would ever say oh Lenny Bruce like the stand-up comedian so I felt somehow entitled to do what I did right except once I rang a guy a a debtor whose name was Jim Morrison I said oh hi Jim Morrison this is Lenny Bruce he goes hey Jim Morrison (laughs) and Lenny Bruce and I enjoyed that and then (laughs) called him a bludger and (laughs) you know the rest of the story 
So I, I do think, though, that kind of floating, while at the time sometimes parents, I think, can think, oh, God, what are you ever going to do with your life? Sometimes you can think that about yourself because you're like, where am I going? Where am I meandering? But one of the things that you realise when you get into a, any kind of performance or comedy or radio or television or anything – those sort of stories that you have from that meandering life of craziness are the chips you can cash yeah. when you get into the point where, you know, once you get into, say, radio in particular, all they want is interesting stories from If you just say, you know, I went to university, I worked a dead-end job and I did nothing, well, then, like, get out of the studio, what are mm. you doing here? But those kind of stories, I mean, they're right for you, comedy acts, for your future. And, and when you get on – and that was one of the great things that helped me – escalate quite quickly is that I was 29 years of age and I had some life experience plus I'd been on the stage for 10 years Mm -hmm. so I had stagecraft I was a pig in shit straight away and everyone had a you know a dope smoking story or a a wanking routine it's like that's cool because you know that's what most of us are doing smoke a lot of weed and wanking Mm -hmm. but you gotta have a little bit more yeah and then those kind of stories, that's where you can get an audience because what an audience want to hear is stories of stuff they would either never do or never have the experience to do. Or also look at you and think, oh, there's a different side to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a depth and something that makes people interested. So there was a, a in this latest comedy festival show, mm. uh, like literally, I was doing a story about being a customs officer for a while, but the show grows exponentially. It's like... Cancer cells, really. Yeah, okay. Not a great analogy. No. <laughs> but just in terms of the aggressive multiplication of the show, bits grow and then you have to squeeze out other bits. You have to. Do you mean that's because when you're in the moment on stage, you develop them? Yeah, you're and doing all of a things live? Digressions. Right. That are earned because you've got a show there, you've got a roadmap to come back to. So then all of a sudden, bits grow and the audience love it. And you go, oh, that's a bit now. Yeah, right. And so. The customs story was basically me and I was part of a covert group and um, we stole some drugs, I guess, is the (laughs) bottom line. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah. uh, I didn't even have to ask a question to get that. You're just volunteering information now. (laughs) And we smoked some drugs. Essentially, the punchline of the story is it was – Easter, it was Good Friday, mm. and it was a bust from the Philippines, 600 kilograms of compressed grass, and they have to open each of the bags. So there's 600 hermetically, is that the name? Hermetically yeah, sealed so, yeah. bag. Mm-hmm. You snip them open, take a sample for the Commonwealth chemist, so a schedule goes to court, A1 to A600 positive for marijuana rather than the 600 kilos going into the court. That's what the happens that to the 600 kilos? That is then taken by the Australian you. Federal Police. <laughs> to my house <laughs> uh, the australian federal police used to take control of the brief then not only all of the evidence but also the statements and they do the corroboration and the final brief for court mm-hmm. and so we were looked on very much as underlings and so and they treated us you know as such so after that is done and they take the marijuana away to destroy it under supervision at their Christmas party or for their benevolent <laughs> fund or whatever, um, we're left to clean up this warehouse. And so we're just kicking big bits of compressed head into different corners. And uh, then we sweep it up, put it in a bag, seal it, tag, give it to the cops. They go away and we go and collect the weed that we've secreted around the warehouse. <laughs> and we were a tight group. It was G Group was the name of the group down on the Melbourne waterfront, mm. a covert operation. And we went back to our 
commander's house, mulled up and skinned up a bunch of fatties and got <laughs> fully mounted <laughs> in front of the greatest story ever told. They're nailing Jesus to the cross. <laughs> and the funny part about it was as you got so stoned, you'd get the fear and look around and there's five customs officers in the lounge room <laughs> just staring at you. It's like, oh, God. Oh, I'm one, oh, I'm one too. And then uh, it was just a bunch of young men, you know, law enforcement officers breaking the law that they were hired to enforce, of course. which is hilarious. But as if this doesn't happen all the time. I wouldn't think so. <laughs> I think it happened that once in the history of law enforcement. I mean, are you suggesting that vice police have sex with prostitutes? <laughs> You're out of your mind. I'm finishing this podcast right now. Tell me about the very first comedy gig that you did, the very first stand-up. Where was it and how did you go about actually putting together well, that's a routine? It, that's the other thing. I'm a very slow starter because I'm not inherently lazy, but I'm not super motivated. Mm. So I, I can work a lot, but it's, someone's got to actually say, you should need to start now. So I was at drama school and going to the SB on Tuesday nights and watching Greg Fleet and that was the other time where the lightning bolt you know connected with me it's like this is it now I had the experience with Stubbsy and now I can see myself in that position mm-hmm. and so I was getting closer and closer and then I was articulating this to people and somebody said we're doing a play at what was the Champion Hotel in uh, Fitzroy on the corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets and uh, why don't you open for us? Why don't you warm up the crowd? So that was my first gig. And, you know, normally a bit of an open mic where you're doing your first gig is four to five minutes. Mm. I did 20 minutes. Wow. And I've still got that Tape? VHS. <gasps> Do you really? And was it any good? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, right. The, he, he's good because he's – and excuse me for speaking of the person. <laughs> I was about to say, hang on a second, what's happened? <laughs> what's happened? I'm having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> now, I look at him because – You'd look at some people and say, oh, something about him reminds me of when I was a young man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it is a little bit out of body because very early on in the gig, I get up and say, hello, hello, the microphone's not working. So I don't try and test the plug or say, can we try this? I just throw it away and do it without a microphone, which is exactly kind of the way I do comedy festival shows now. I don't have a little radio mic on. Mm. Because I want my hands. Yeah, yeah. Are so, you a gesticulator? Well, gesticulator, but also I want to be able to draw a picture and yeah. I'm, you know, use my body and take on character. And so I started off and I was so nervous. I thought I'll start with some Rodney Dangerfield gags, which, you know, of course, is unacceptable in comedy to just lift somebody else's material. <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm not going out there unarmed. So, But you hadn't written anything. I'd written, you know, a, yeah, a routine. I'd written a whole lot of stuff, but I just needed to start off I'll with start some jokes. Start off with something that worked. That I, yeah. Yeah. We're guaranteed we're going to get <laughs> yeah. a laugh that I found funny. Yeah. But then I'm into a, a wide-ranging routine about, you know, growing up in the suburbs and brothers and Catholicism and, you know, the male body and all this stuff and get to the end of 20 minutes, it's like, that's pretty good, mate. Wow. Because there's this thing that, you know, when you start something, when you're very in your early stages and you would have had it in radio, mm. you don't know that you can't. So you don't know what can go wrong or what you shouldn't do and all that sort of stuff. So that's the raw energy. So did you stick to the script at all or did you just open the mic, start with your Roger da- Rod- Rodney, Rodney da- Dangerfield, get it Roger out? Roger David. <laughs> did you start with your Roger David? I- not only does he have a menswear store, he's 
an amazing comedian. <laughs> Um, yes, I know. It started with my Rodney Dangerfield jokes. <laughs> Roger Danger, uh, David, yep. And then did you roll it or did you just – you were just going then? And that, you, no, I knew exactly where I was going to go. Right, so I had okay. a list in my head and off I went. And and it was supposed to be a quick five minutes with the people on the side oh, of the no, stage. Oh, no, they wanted me to do 20. Oh, they, they wanted, did? Yeah. Okay, right. And then they, I don't know whether you remember the show, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Oh, yes. It was Ricky Lake. And yes, yes. All those – so it was a parody of one of those. So – the hosts, you know, this over-the-top American and then all the guests are quite weird and they have some weird interaction. That's the show. It was nowhere near as funny as my 20 minutes <laughs> with respect to my friends who gave me that opportunity. Yeah. Well, when you're away. pulling out the Roger David gags, I yeah. mean, what can you expect? Roger David menswear. <laughs> who doesn't love Argyle? <laughs> so then what then – how did – was was that the first event? Were you going to open mic nights? Like how did it go well, from there? Well, it's a bit of a stuttering start when you – most people start comedy, they do a few gigs and then stop for a bit. So I did a f- probably half a dozen gigs in 94. Then 95, I started going to the ESPY quite religiously to the waiting room on Sunday and to the Star and Garter. And so... Well, that's where Mez went too, Merrick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember Merrick He was first from, gig at the Star and Garter Hotel. I remember Merrick from way back in the early days. Yeah, right. Um I think before him and Rosso were a team, probably. In fact, no, I used to go ahead and see him at the, uh, what's the name of the hotel? It's in Johnson Street, Fitzroy, in 96, when him and Rosso was doing their live sketch show. They used to have this great sketch called um, oh, PE Teacher 5000 or something <laughs> like that. And so Tim would be doing the... The setup or the voiceover, like it was an ad. Mm. You know, you've got to get your PE teacher five thousand. <laughs> yeah. And Mez is in a singlet and those nylon sprinting shorts that are just pulled up too high, white socks up to his calves and runners, shades like aviator shades on, and a whistle. He's just going around going, Rachel. <laughs> You've uh, certainly turned into a beautiful young woman over the summer. <laughs> now give me ten, and just blowing his whistle and smoking a lot of horrific sexual innuendo to people in the audience. It's like, Tim would go, be a teacher 5,000. How do you feel about, because I, I remember I must have been 17 going to American Rosso live show and then sort of, you know, 20 years later you're um, sitting in a studio with this bloke doing a show with him every day. You know, you work closely with Mez now on, yeah. on Merrickville. You said you're friends with Greg Fleet, you watched him in the early days at the ESPY. Yeah, that was interesting because, like, you know, he's like a hero who's become probably my closest friend in comedy. You know, I would count my comedian friends on one hand. Every so often it's I think it's interesting to sort of step outside and go, gosh, I, I sat down and watched that guy on stage 20 years before I even met and now... I do. Yeah, uh, do you think I do reflect that? on that and mm. it's just so gratifying to have actually come all this way together. Yeah. And that's one of the the nicest things and certainly in our industry where it can be very cutthroat and sometimes you know people lie to you and treat you terribly but to actually made the journey you know sure we've all bitched about one another behind each other's backs and said up things (laughs) because you know you're hurt and you you want success and it's not coming your way and you're disillusioned or you think there's you know some injustice or the world owes you a living but yeah it's very gratifying to be 23 years down the track from the first stand-up and have had all those lovely friendships and had a pretty good life from it too. Mm. I've had a fair slice of the cake. Yeah, you have. For for a relative 
unknown. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm not um, a but gold logie. I think you're well I'm, known. Like you're- I mean, I'm well known. I'm happy with how well known I am. And I, a lot of people come to see my live shows. But still, it's quite niche. Yes, but I think you've kind of struck that continual gun for hire. Gun you for know. hire, I like. <laughs> but, you know, like you're con- you're pretty consistently popping up everywhere. You're a pretty solid go-to guy for, oh, we've got yeah. somebody that we need to, to host this or we've got somebody that we need to fill this spot. Like you're a pretty reliable go-to, which is a great place to get. But yeah, you don't I- have to have all of that, oh, the paps are outside the f- hanging in my garden and I can't go oh, to the shops. I mean, God. thank God, right? Because if the paps were on me. I've come out of some places where I prefer not to be photographed coming out of. The Jeff Hugel Memorial Handicap Toilet, you know, it's like, like, you know, there's been proclivities and habits and celebrations and all sorts of things that I've done. You know, people I've been with, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Do you feel now, though, that you've gotten to this point in your career where, you know, you are doing a lot for a lot of different places, you still do your own solo shows? Do you, you were mentioning briefly about, I guess, that desperation that can kick in at certain parts across the career where you're sort of like, oh, my God, they're getting it and I'm not. Or did you, mm. did you feel that a lot but you sort of feel like you've come through that now? Yeah, I was experiencing that and that you experienced that at different times, particularly the day after you, you're sacked. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, that, we've all been that's there. That's when it really kicks in. The day after you're sacked and then three months into <laughs> a long period of unemployment. <laughs> you get to go, f*** that guy, I deserve yeah. that. The Why silence is really deafening when yeah. you're waiting for the phone to ring. It's like tumbleweeds are rolling through my professional career right now. Which one of the great things about stand-up is you're not idle or yeah. the, the tumbleweeds really don't get to shift Mm. in because then you just go into stand-up yeah so there has been those moments one of the things that i have done and i i reckon that i've been criticized for it by people within the industry is i've been prepared to do anything like i spoke to a manager Mm. and um she was like oh you know when i saw you on the denise show and then you did postcards on channel nine and ended up at mix i was thinking well what's he doing and i you know, continued the conversation for a while, but thought, F- you, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was making, making a living. A living. Yeah. yeah. Raising my child at the time, now my children, and staying in the game. And those choices haven't damaged me at all. They might have made people go, mm, it's a bit uncool or whatever. But also it says to the industry, he's a bit of an all-rounder, so he can do a lot of stuff. Mind you, I did shit on that at the end of the first round of commercial radio and I know that I've heard it from people who thought it Mm. and that is he's too volatile he's untouchable because there was this reputation that I was just out of control on the booze and drugs were you I probably wasn't out of control but yeah I certainly had a predilection to Mm. getting on but that kept me out of commercial radio for a long time and I had to really prove myself that I was reliable and you know would turn up and I don't know what kind of imagery Mm. was existing in people's minds, but, yeah, it was like, yeah, let's pass him by. What was the gig that finished up that you... It was Mix 101.1, more music that makes you feel good, now Kiss in Melbourne. By the end of that, yeah, our little team had some terminal faults. You know when your computer screen goes blank, it just goes... (laughs) XYB70607 <laughs> terminal fault. Well, our little team had those. Everyone in that team had something going on. 
and under the heat of commercial radio re-entry, we exploded <laughs> and everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all good people now, happy in their lives, doing other stuff. Do you think that was was the the volatility that people kind of avoided a product of that environment, or was that you had something? Was that something that you? Uh, had an attraction to that you've kind of mildly grown out of? Oh, um, it was a couple of things. It was the end of uh, marriage, mm. um, the pressure of breakfast radio and doing a comedy festival show and doing way too much booze and drugs and telling people exactly what I thought about them. Never a good thing. <laughs> Never, ever a good thing. Yeah, no. It's like punching a cop feels good for four seconds. <laughs> Three, two, two one. one. Shit. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. doing a bit of that and piss too. The arm outstretched, the finger pointing. Oh, God. That that guy who's immediately, if you're on the end of that, you tell everyone you oh, know what yeah. happened last night. And the business is small. Yeah, and so all those people tell everyone else that Lawrence Mooney was in the Peter Cook bar calling somebody a the, the hard thing, though, you think... And they did not deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> the hard thing, because though... Because they're perceived wrong. Yeah. It's just that. It's a perceived wrong. It's like you're highly emotional. What you really want to go over to that person and say is, I'm really scared and frightened that I'm being left out. And can you help me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's but it's not a please help me is not something that you, uh, you know, articulate everybody's so busy acting like every, everything's fine and oh, no, I'm totally okay with all of this. Please help me runs not too distant second to abusing that person because mm. then they will just go, my God, Lawrence May is so pathetic and yeah. desperate. Yeah. And that's just as bad as being an aggro drunk. Yeah, but I think that's part of that whole thing. <laughs> so is- you've got to row your own canoe. It's like <laughs> you've got to shut your face and work your ass off. But it's interesting because you, you need to find that middle ground between being honest about the difficulties of the business and the vulnerabilities within all of us that exist in not just people in media but everyone everywhere. Also then finding people within the business that you can genuinely trust. I think that takes a long time until you find those – and I, I feel like I'm now at the stage where I'm like, yep, got it down, got, know the people I like and I know and I trust. But in those early, early days, man, I was flapping around the deep end feeling like I was just out in the middle of the sea with no one to grab onto. And, yeah, everyone feels like that at some stage. Yeah. So you do need a confidant because you can't take your grievances public under the auspices of red wine or scotch. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't do you any good. And also you've got to – make sure that there's a base in your life that is solid. Oh, yeah. And so when your relationship breaks apart mm. and all of a sudden you're living on your own for the first time. I'd lived in share houses all the time since I'd left home and then, you know, partnered and had a child and then I was living on my own in a shotgun shack down the bay in self-imposed exile, just getting smashed mm. and doing breakfast radio. Oh, man, and, and you that's tough. Got, you've got no, you know, you you end up just emotionally slipping mm. and then you end up in a, a short-term relationship with an insane person mm. and then you get a bad cold, then your car breaks down and you're just thinking, I'm, I'm f***ed here. Mm. I remember 
I was driving this old Renault Fuego <laughs> and I was on my haunches outside the mechanics because it had broken down and uh, I'd kind of like lurched down to Hawthorne and it's like my life's out of control and I just sat with my head in my hands and I had to do a comedy festival show that night and it was just like blobby tears <laughs> blobby tears on the asphalt it's like no this is no good <laughs> but, none of this is good but that is I mean as you know you see you see it enough in the movies and life and everything like mm. it is that sort of stuff has to happen if you are ever going to be a fully fledged normal person in this business like it, yeah. the the people that I that have come through that are, are, like have a healthy relationship with things are the people that have have seen themselves break into a million pieces and realized okay I got to be a bit more resilient. Yeah, mind you, I don't want to say to anybody starting out in the industry, you've got to go break there. yourself. Like, break yourself. <laughs> Just get on the Scotch right now. Scream at some of your contemporaries. No, I mean, we don't stay up to- for three days till you cry, and then you'll make it. No, <laughs> let's not go there. No. no. So, so what? That that's not necessarily have, always the no, case. No, but you have to have. But an- if you've been through that then, yeah, you've been tempered. You just have to understand that you're fallible. Like mm. you have to understand that you're not invincible. And I think a lot of the people that I've worked with in the years that have had the most difficulty are the ones that haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. But mind you, there was one compounding factor in all of that 2004 misery that I'm kind of like <laughs> leaving out or 2005. I was so my marriage broken up and, you know, then you, you're separated from your child, which is horrible. Um my, I've been sacked. Mm. I had a really bad cold. I was sick. I was doing this comedy festival show. My car had broken down. And I was going out with an insane person. And I had dyed blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just adding insult yeah. to injury. Which, <laughs> if I had have said that first, you could have filled in all the other things. You could have gone, oh, was that yeah. happening? Was this happening? Because that is a sign to other people with dyed blonde hair that you need help and they come and they give you the help that they think you need and it's not the help you need. <laughs> that is a red flag. That's such a red flag. Oh, my god. You goodness. dye your hair blonde and you are into a whole new world. And... <laughs> Wow. So that was a year and I got rid of my blonde hair and that will never happen again. Never. Well, actually, not it's even, Don't even dabble with it with not the even tips. tips. <laughs> not, not even tips. Because it was female friends after I'd got rid of it completely that said to me, thank God that's over. But they won't tell you at the time. At the time. They can't because they've got to just watch you go through it. Exactly. But that's the worst thing when you realise, particularly if you've hung on to something for a long period of time, you're like... I had that blonde hair for six years and you never said anything. Yeah. But nobody will ever tell you until you're through it because they understand everybody. It's like, you know, when you're dating, when you can see your mates dating someone that's an absolute <laughs> wit. And you go, my my opinion isn't going to change this. Mm. i got to let her ride it out, you know. And then afterwards they come to you and you say, oh, God, that was a disaster. And the worst thing when that happens is when they get back with the person and you've already told them that you think they're an absolute well, arsehole. Then that doesn't happen with hair. No. No. It was 16 months from... Full blonde, yellow. Oh, you and, let it grow out too, and, didn't no, you? No, no. I let it grow out, but then right through to tips, I got it cut. Oh. Then there was some like, I can see in the very early days of doing postcards on Channel 9, there's some just some oh. remnant. But I was through the worst of it. 
Because um, I made a, a resolution to myself, and it, you do have epiphanies in that darkness. And I was down in that house where I was living just blind one night, and I looked at the wall and I thought, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die. So I want to get off the booze, I want to leave this place, and I want to find a, a wife. And so I next day I looked for a, an apartment. I started going to AA, mm. which I went to for nine months. Did you obviously you found it helpful? Oh, it's great. Yeah. In fact, the the fact that you can just get up anonymously and talk, mm. I think it would be helpful even if you didn't have an issue with substances. Yeah, absolutely. Just an, an anonymous place to go to say, I had a really shit day. I'm having a bad time with my employer or my relationship or I hate myself or, or a whatever sense of community where you yeah. feel safe to say, you know what, things aren't great. Life doesn't look like my Facebook feed. You know? <laughs> I'm, 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 Nobody's done. <laughs> Nobody's done. Isn't it interesting when you know somebody is a real prick and that they are so horrible to their partner and all you see on their Facebook feed is how much they love their partner. Yeah. And Facebook is the worst example of humans, you know. Duplicity. Yeah, exactly. Nobody is putting up there, I cried myself to sleep at night, I'm lonely. Mm. You know, nobody's putting, I hate myself, you know. Everyone's like, oh, my God, just loving life, everything's amazing. Especially when you see those friends. Look at my pasta. Yeah. <laughs> Look at it. Or like I see that often happens when you, you know post breakup and things. You, you know what you need to do post breakup? You need to go get yourself good again. Get your, don't get on Facebook and go. Oh my god, dressed up, ready to go out for a night with the girls. So happy to be on my own again. Rid, rid of the driftwood or whatever. You think you are so miserable. Yeah. You're so you miss him so much. Yeah, you're trying to. <laughs> Recover way too quickly. <laughs> way Do you know too what's going to happen? You're going to end up with blonde hair, and then <laughs> you're a lot of strange, weird people. A lot. Oh gosh. Because if they're prepared to go to where you live, which is not close to town, <laughs> they've got no self-respect. <laughs> That's what I was dealing with. It's like I love these people. They have got zero. <laughs> Esteem. <laughs> if you're having sex with me, you've got no self-esteem. That's where I was. What a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> On that positive note, uh, let me let me wrap up with the final few questions. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is what you think the best and the worst thing about the business is. Oh, the best thing about the business is the freedom it gives you to do whatever you want, really. Mm. That's the ultimate thing. Be whoever you want to be. And the business is very happy for you to reinvent. And I love that idea of like whatever identity you want to take on, whatever you want to be, you can be. The worst thing about it is the renting, howling, self-doubt and fear that you're going to disappear into the abyss every day and you wonder where it's going to end because it will end. Mm. And one day you'll never work again and that bays at you. Like a murderous dog. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel? Keeps you moving. <laughs> sure does. But that's. I mean, ha- that's. <laughs> that sounds. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Very happy with that. But do you think you've been smart about that in terms of like? Uh, yeah, know. when I f- up, I've righted the ship, and also I've done some apologising. Mm. Where I've gone and said I was uh, out of line. Mm. I behaved appallingly. I want to say that I was out of character. It's not a defence for what I did. It's just to let you know that 
that's not exactly who I am. And uh, I did a few of those, which is vital. You've got to apologise. Rather than let it go and think, oh, f- them. they probably hate me. They probably do, but don't hate yourself. So go and front the person and say, I was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm not seeking your forgiveness and I'm not seeking absolution. Just want to say that I'm conscious mm. and that's that. Uh, final five questions. The first, your biggest regret. I, I should be acting more. That's what I should be doing. I should be acting a lot more. You know, they say the only thing you regret in the end is what you didn't, didn't do. do. If uh, if I don't do a whole lot more acting before it's over, I will not be as comfortable on the deathbed. Do you feel like you're not pursuing that? I'm not pursuing that hard enough and I know that it takes a huge amount of commitment so something probably has to go. Right. So I'm going to leave my wife again. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that's not even a funny joke. No. So um. do you feel like you're – there's obviously things that you could be doing that you're Look, not doing right now to make that happen? Yeah. In, from comedy, which I love and uh, love doing, has come a great deal of privilege. So I make a great living from it. Mm. And so I know that basically I'd have to cut back on how much comedy I'm doing in order to devote my time to acting – and it's that old, you know, are you prepared to sacrifice? And what are you prepared to sacrifice? And to become a good actor or a great actor, you've got to sacrifice a lot and you've got to be single-minded about it. So that is potentially my biggest regret and currently one of my biggest regrets. Yes, but the price that you pay for it now is probably worth it because ain't no bigger price than sitting on your deathbed going, I can't get any years back. Mm, unless That's you don't my have biggest a deathbed. Fear. And you just oh, you just get hit by a bus. Bus. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be. Whilst you're on your iPhone, <laughs> looking at a Twitter feed to see that whether somebody's <laughs> said that you're awesome. You've got. Yeah, like <laughs> boom. <laughs> what a way to go. Oh. Um, the second question, maybe. So maybe this is you've just answered this partially. Your dream gig would it be something to do with acting? Oh yeah, it would be. An, I reckon I've had some amazing stand-up gigs i couldn't imagine having much better than i've already had you know i wouldn't say you know a royal variety performance would just be too nervous and it'd be shit i'd be <laughs> yeah it would ruin the three days beforehand and yeah the 10 afterwards <laughs> um so yeah my dream gig would be like a plum acting role in an awesome movie or tv series TV series are getting good. I mean, TV series are like, the new you know, movies just these days, aren't they? As an actor, if you're John Hamm or Brian Cranston, Cranston mm. you know, like one of those roles. Mm. All right, we'll watch this space. Uh, a big idea oh. that never got. Oh, no, you've changed no, your mind. No, you can no. change your mind if you want. I was thinking about more plum rolls. <laughs> Just sit here and th- you can't just sit here and think about them. You got to go out and do something. Yeah, you got to do something you know? about. Them. Um, I'd like to play. A, I'd like to play a haggard, hard-bitten cop, but there's probably too many crime series now, isn't there? Mm. The Scandinavians are killing it with crime too. Would you ever write one yourself? Do you think? Um, I've had a go at that. Well, I wrote Moon Man, but with a writer. Right. Writing's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that I'm. I don't think I'm a very good writer in terms of like the discipline. I could, I can write some good dialogue, but it's also a lifetime's work. Oh yeah, where you've been constantly writing, and now you write, you know, 
your great piece. Mm. It's not like, yeah, I might give it a go and write a screenplay. Like, no. no. Well, that's like when you see even famous novelists, screenwriters. Nobody ever says when they when they ask the question, how long did this take you to write six months? Everybody says, oh, five years, 10 years, 15 years. For your sort of magnum opus, you know, it's, you, you better sit down and buckle in for the long ride. Yeah. If, you, if you're too easily distracted and doing bits and pieces, it can be pretty difficult to think I'm just going to singly focus on that thing. And for I think it's also a years. little bit arrogant to think, well, I'm – good at stand-up i'm very good at stand-up i'm mm. a good stand-up just to go well because i'm good at this I, i'll probably be good at that too yeah yeah it's like, shut up <laughs> yeah please <laughs> yeah please all of you shut, shut up. up um what's a big idea that you never got up or alternatively if you haven't got one of those uh, you know an idea that you still want to do i did this sketch show with greg fleet marty sheargold Des Dowling, Damien Callan and myself called How Good's This? And it was a really great show. We did uh, a couple of live performances and they were intersected with taped sketches. Mm. And it was really quality stuff, but it never never went anywhere. So that was one of those big ideas that we wanted to do. But I sit down with Fleety and come up with ideas all the time. We've always had this one called The Red Berry, mm. which is... Um, when we both finally come out, we go and open a B&B <laughs> in Bathurst. And it's where... You must do this. It's where A-list celebrities come just to play out their sexuality in these massive weekend orgies. And so on the Monday morning, you know, we descend the stairs and covered in filth <laughs> and hung over. It's like, oh, fleety. And we talk about... Different celebrities' sexual proclivities. Wasn't Nicole turned up for the books? And just so it's just talking about fake celebrity eroticism on this weekend orgy that we've supposedly had. That's a great idea. Covered in kind of like dried red and brown and crust. Oh, pass me, make me a martini sitting there in these dressing gowns, elaborate <laughs> kind of dressing gowns, just covered in horror. Like, what is that on his eyelash? You know, drinking wonderful cocktails and just talking about, oh, Bert was up here again. Listen, Bert, I said, homosexuality is not a jacket you put on for the <laughs> weekend. Make up your mind. Terrible. Okay, well, you must do that. I'm going to hold yeah. you to it. As my four-year-old daughter walked <laughs> through in that last <laughs> sentence. So you, you're into the red berry. I'm into the red berry. I think yeah. that's a great idea. Little webisode series, maybe. Yes, I think it would be a great web yeah. series. So if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Mm, politics. No. Do you just say that because you're doing the voice of Malcolm Turnbull and everybody's loving Absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I've always I've had a, a great lust for politics Don't and I've loved it. you going nuts though? Absolutely. And I'd implode like Latham. Yes. I'd start calling people terrible <laughs> names. I'd shave my hair off yeah. and run down the street <laughs> screaming. I'd end up on Sky News, <laughs> a right-wing reactionary and then just be end up run out of town. It's exactly what would happen. So best I'm not. <laughs> Thank God you got into comedy then. Thank God. Because there's no so you can do all of those things that you've just mentioned and there are absolutely no consequences. No, Everybody's like standing ovation. You win a Barry Award. <laughs> yeah. When he shaved his own hair off, that was amazing. <laughs> 
Um, and finally, your advice for people wanting to get into the business. Get into it. Do whatever you can to get into it and do as much as you can. Also, excite the muse by other means. I love going to art galleries. Mm. It doesn't directly ran- translate to... But something goes in the something blender. Something goes in, yeah. yeah. And so it, it opens the mind and yeah. all of a sudden there's an idea there that brings you open. So see as much art as you can. Do you think in ge- like if, as a comedian, do you think going to other comedy shows is a bit like do you think ingesting things within your I, – I think there's sometimes a, that odd balance between, yes, you want to see how it's done, but I, I also just get scared sometimes. I don't want to steal anybody's gear <laughs> or like – Yeah, I'm, I'd be – if I really liked something, then I'd be conscious that – Yeah, you don't want to steal it. No, I'm not going to steal it because I know that it's, it's stuck out to me. Mm. And if it's average, it's not going to stick with me. So mm. I don't have that fear. Um, but I can just get bored with stand-up comedy. So it, I use it sparingly. I mix mm. it amongst a whole lot of other stuff, particularly theatre. I love the theatre. I love that you know world where you suspend disbelief, you get into the life of the characters and away it goes. By the same token, if it's bad, it puts me in the foulest mood. I want to f***ing kill someone. But don't you – I often go and there's a lot of bad – like it's it's rare that I go and go – Oh, I'm quite supportive, but if it's... I'm supportive, but, but... If it's a particular kind of bad, like if it's a bit up itself bad, there's a type of bad where it's like, oh, you think you're so good, yeah, but you're shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I hope I see the red berry come out soon. I also hope that we see you in some kind of Brian Cranston, uh, Breaking Bad style Sopranos. TV. Sopranos. Something epic. Style uh, oh, TV thanks. show. I hope so too. Uh, and I do put appreciate you. I have put the pressure on, and I do appreciate your time. Thank you for meandering through the the randomness of your life with what me. What a joy it's been for the last fifty years. <laughs> thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Lawrence Mooney. Uh, I tell you, we went deep. We were chatting for three and a bit hours that day. Only one hour of that was recorded, but uh, we sort of got into all of the details of both of our lives. And he was absolutely brilliant to interview because we just went a lot of places that a lot of people won't go. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast and you can check out all of the show notes pages for this and other episodes at you've got to start somewhere.com. Next week on the show, I have a bit of a radio legend, somebody who has been in the business for a long, long time. And anybody around my age will remember from the Hot 30 countdown in the early 90s. It's Ugly Phil. He is one of the true survivors in this game. Uh, and he talks about how he's managed to have a career that spanned decades, including why he was drawn to radio in the first place. I liked the idea, the concept of the whole thing because I used to listen to the radio and I used to tape the songs off the radio and I just loved the idea of the disc jockey in between, you know, Mm. um, talking about music and because I was a pretty lonely kid. I didn't have many friends um, because of, you know, moving around the world and stuff with my parents. So 
it seemed that the disc jockey lifestyle was really glamorous and you know i really bought into the fact that oh it's a celebrity who gets to go around town in a limousine and you know gets to vip access to you know nightclubs but i mean that that wasn't the driving force behind it i also was just i just like the idea of being able to have someone to talk to i hope you'll join me for that chat next week if you have any ideas of people you would like me to try and trace down and have a chat with i would love your suggestions you can head to you've got to start somewhere.com and just go to the contact page to send me an email and I'll see you in your ears next week.